Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always, down the line with my co-host, Octavia Bright. <laughs> down the line from London, I should say. Oh, I'm That's messing right. this up. <laughs> Hi, Octavia. How are you? Hi, Carrie. I'm sorry that down the line has become a thing now. That's definitely my fault. Um, <laughs> it's very much your fault. Normally, I like to share the blame, but no, not in this case. <laughs> Well, I'm fine. I'm feeling guilty for that. But apart from that, I'm fine. No, I mean, I'm going to take a minute to just complain about the weather because it has been the filthiest, filthiest weather for the last few days. And I'm feeling completely stir crazy as a result, actually. How about you? Yeah, well, I'm really hoping by the time that the show is broadcast, the weather is better than it is now because it has been truly terrible. Although I had to go to an event in Shropshire last night and um, stayed overnight And it snowed, like properly snowed to the point where I had to walk out of the house, like down a very, very long drive in order to even get a taxi. Um, And the vegetable truck that was making a delivery got stuck on the way up. So, oh my God, so yes. so country. Yeah, it's very country. <laughs> and it was very exciting. It's just, there's nothing better than walking in the snow, I think. Um, yeah, really proper snow is amazing. Whereas here, we just had that horrible urban sleet that just means... You don't want to be outside. It's really cold. It's also wet. It's horrible. It's gray. Everything depressing. Yes. Yeah. Bring on April, we say. Get me to anyway. the southern hemisphere is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> Someone come and get me and take me away. <laughs> uh, on to the show. Today, we have the pleasure of welcoming the author Jacqueline Crooks to the show to talk about her debut novel, Fire Rush. Fire Rush is an intoxicating story about the dub reggae scene in 70s and 80s London, told from the perspective of a young Black woman named Yame. It's about love, loss, freedom, and finding family. In honor of Crooks's evocative description of the dub scene, and especially the dancing that goes on in it, and there is dancing, we have decided to make dance the wider theme of our show today. We'll be talking about our favorite dance scenes in literature from balls to clubs, how good writing gets into the corporeal mode of dance and dance subcultures as depicted in books. But before we get started, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about Jacqueline Octavia? I sure can. Jacqueline Crooks grew up in 70s and 80s Southall, part of London's migrant community, carving out a space through music, culture and politics. Immersed in the gang underworld as a young woman, she later discovered the power of writing and music to help her look outwards and engage differently with the world, a power that has driven her ever since, from her work with charities to her prize-winning short story collections. Also, a quick reminder, we are on Patreon if you would like to support the work that we do and get extra content exclusively. You can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash litfriction, where you will find monthly exclusive minisodes as well as the chance to suggest topics for us to talk about. We've had some really fun topics lately, including our thoughts on both the beginnings and the endings of books. So if you would like to listen to any of those things, you can find us there, patreon.com forward slash lit friction. You can also find a list of all the books we recommended today on bookshop.org. Now stay tuned for our interview with Jacqueline Crooks, a discussion of dance and literature, and finally our usual reading recommendations. So put on your most fabulous but comfy shoes and come boogie with us for the next hour of literary friction.
Jacqueline Crooks, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. It's great to be here. So we have asked you to start with a reading from Fire Rush. Do you mind setting it up for us? I'd love to read. Thank you. Follow the smoke. One o'clock in the morning, hot foot, all three of us, stepping where we had no business. Tombstone estate gals, Caribbean, Irish. No one expects better. We ain't it, but we sure ain't shit. All we need is a little bit of rhythm. So we got in it, deep down into the dance hall crypt. Come now, Assassi calls, pushing her way down the stairs. High priestess glow, red anchor cloth wound round her head like a towering inferno. We squeeze past chirpsing men, stand in front of the arched wooden crypt door. We suck in the last of the O2. I follow Assassi inside. My gal, she follows the smoke. Beneath barrel-vaulted arches, dance all darkness. Pile up bodies, ganja clouds. We lean against flesh-eating limestone walls near two coffin-sized speaker boxes that vibrate us into the underworld. Runnings. The scene goes the usual way. A Rasta pulls rumour, which is good because that's the only kind of man she'll dance with. They're respectful. They're my brethren, she says. A sweet boy pulls a sassy. Testing, testing, one, two, three. Lights go on for a few seconds. Only one type of man left for me. A tall, light-skinned man, face the colour of wet sand, stalked green eyes, standing in his silence. The man pulls me with not so much as a what's up, wanna dance, nothing. Watcher, there are only three kind of man pulls, usually from behind. Pull one, grip above elbow, pull back, bend, ram hard, rubbing. Options for get it. Pull two, hand grip, spin, face to face, body check, ram rub. Options, none. Best give up your body for one tune, at the very least. Pull three, soft boy tap on shoulder. Options, enough. This man's trouble. I can tell by his use of pull one and the size of his belt. And the way he jukes himself into my centre of gravity. His body's not tuned for rhythms. It's flexed for the war zones of history, the battles of the streets. I tip my arse, inch my pubic bone away from his hard-on. He puts his mouth to my ear, warm breath, simmer down, flattens his palms against my batty and pulls me back in. Version after B-side instrumental version, he grips me, wordless. We're in a crypt, in the thick of duppy dust, lost rivers, streams and sewers bubbling beneath us. Thank you. I love hearing you read that. And that's from the very beginning of the novel, isn't it? That's from the first chapter, yes. So I want to start by asking, you say in the acknowledgments that this novel is a fictionalized account of your life. And you've written a lot of short fiction, but this is your first novel. You've said in other interviews that it took you 16 years to write. What made you want to tell the story in novel form? And 
tell us about that process, those 16 years. Like, how did how did you get here? I mean, first of all, telling it um, by way of a novel, uh, it wasn't my first choice. I was playing around first as diary entries, then short stories. But I realized that I'm, I'm, I'm taking on the big subject here. The sound revolution of, of Black Britain in the 1970s is such a huge topic. It's politics, it's art, it, it's, it, there's so much there. So I realized it needed the structure of a novel to contain everything and all the different layers and to connect them, something I didn't feel short stories could contain. So it had to be um, the novel, although I did perhaps try to resist it at first, thinking, how am I going to structure this? So yeah, that was my reasoning for the novel. And then, yeah, tell us about the 16 years. What was the process like? Were there fits and starts? Was it just a slow writing process? Yeah, it was fits and starts. I was writing a a collection of linked short stories alongside this. Every time I got stuck with the short stories, I'd park them and come back to this. Um, But I also had to do a lot of research for this because, again, writing about sound system culture, going back to the 1970s, exploring the politics of the time, Margaret Thatcher, also doing a lot of research into into the technology of the production of dub reggae music. It it was mainly men who were involved in that. I was never on that side of the the music scene. It was just, I was engaged in the dancing. Um, So I had to do lots of research around getting the sound, understanding the sound effects, how they were made. I'm not surprised to hear you say that you had to do a lot of research and you spent a lot of time getting the dub reggae scene in London in the 70s and 80s right because it feels so alive and so specific. And I wonder if you could just tell our listeners, for those who aren't as familiar with what it was, you know, what was the scene and and why did you want it to be the setting for your novel? Yes, I... You know, in, in about 2000, I suddenly remembered the scene that I'd once lived in as, a, you know, started to go to as a 15-year-old. And it suddenly struck me, looking back on it, wow, not many people in mainstream society knew that subculture existed. And I felt like I wanted to recreate a lost world because it, it was powerful at the time. The dances were below ground. They were hidden from mainstream society it was as if I was exploring the politics of invisibility. So mainly this this subculture created these spaces underground as a way to create their own spaces for communing, creating, because they perhaps didn't feel welcome in mainstream society. They were mainly migrants from the 1960s. So they took place from 12 o'clock midnight and they'd gone till dawn. So very subliminal hours. And the music was like 200 watt speakers so loud so it was very ironic that we weren't seen or heard but the music was so loud and we were kind of energizing ourselves on that on that sound system that bass music so it felt like a very unusual space an unusual setting with unusual music that was kind of ghostly sound effects that was at once taking you away to otherworldly spaces via the echoing chambers of the music and kind of sound was inhabiting your body. So there's so much going on in that in the, was unusual. And then you'd come up at dawn in the daylight and the everyday world was going on about you and it felt as if you the world you just inhabited didn't really exist. You, you'd imagined it somehow. 
There's also this wonderful seam that runs through the book with the way you describe the clothes that everybody's wearing in this seam. And I loved it, but it felt very specific to this time and a place. And it felt also like a real celebration of that particular style. And I wonder, was that just about kind of really painting the picture for us or was there something else going on there in you wanting to include it? Yeah, so there's several things going on. I wanted to show the creativity, the artistry of the that community. So I, I think I'm trying to say that it was not just the dub DJ, sorry, the dub DJ uh, MCs and the producers that were the artists. I, I like to. I'm trying to say that the the dancers, the the ravers, they were all artists, whether they were creating dance moves or styling it out with a beautiful beautiful fashion. They really turning up in, in something unusual and outstanding was, was part of the night. You had to spend the whole week or the whole month saving up for an outfit, choosing it, buying it, styling it very specifically. And so that was part of the scene, going how everyone looked was part of that really dynamic environment. And also the clothes were coded. What you wore said something about who you were. If you wore gold-tipped shoes, you're a sticks gal, gal, a hard gal, a hustler, maybe someone who went up to the West End and stole things and sold them on. You and someone who you not to be messed with. If you wore like more cocktaily dresses with soft, fluid colours, you were a soft girl, you were looking for a boyfriend, you, you were available. So the clothes were very coded. Um, so that was the other thing I was trying to communicate through what a sassy wears and how that differs to what Yame and Rumor wear. And I love that idea of the dancers as artists themselves. And actually, our, our larger theme for the show today is dance. Partially, we just, mm. because we loved how you wrote about dance in this book. Um, it, it's so uh, visceral, I suppose. And I, I wanted to ask you, how did you approach writing those scenes? How did you approach writing about dance and kind of capturing the experience of dancing or being in the vicinity of other people dancing? I was really drawn on my experiences of going to those dub dances at the age of 15 and, and then carrying on dancing in those scenes for you know many years afterwards. And the feeling of freedom as a young woman who was not um, comfortable inside her body, uh, was not comfortable in society, had no sense of her agency and, and power, but then going into that dub reggae dance hall and the music played and dancing, I found a kind of liberation through the movement that we were able to kind of experiment with and take beyond what we imagined our bodies could do via, by way of the powerful music. So it's really drawing on my memory of how powerful the dancing made me feel and how I think I found my power through dancing to dub reggae. That really hits the nail on the head that dance can be profoundly transformative. But also, you know, in the novel, some of the characters talk about the roots of, of dub in slave uprising. So there's this connection of the music and the dancing to a bigger transformation, like a social political transformation. Um, and I wonder, could you tell us a little bit more about that history for anyone listening who doesn't know? Yes. I mean, dub reggae is coming from reggae. Reggae is coming from ska. Ska is coming from rock steady. And we can trace it all the way back to the slave uprisings where there were drums because dub reggae is, is, is drum and bass. And the heart of, of dub reggae is the drums. 
and it's a very ancestral, atavistic sound, and you we are responding to it with our body and, and, and through dance. But it, it kind of is a revolutionary sound. If you hear those drums, you are ready to fight. You are ready to to join the revolution. It is a calling, dub reggae. It's reminding us of that ancestral calling to to fight against oppression and injustice. So dub reggae, we do, we can trace it right back to the slave uprisings, right back to Africa and the the ancestral sound. Do you still um, spend any time in the dancehall scene now? <laughs> no, I couldn't. I couldn't keep up with it. Like I said, you know, <laughs> dancing from twelve o'clock until seven midnight, uh, seven in the morning. I think I gave. I think I dropped out of the scene at the age of about thirty-five, and I play it at home now. And I'll, I'll dance and I'll bust out my dance moves in my bedroom. <laughs> I'll go to some of my friends who are fe- women dub DJ um, masters. I'll go to the, some of their sessions and then you know shock out with them. Yeah. Do you see a relationship between your practice as a writer and your relationship to music and dance? Yes, I, I don't. I think that music and writing are they, they are deeply connected. I, I I can hardly separate them. If I'm writing, I, ha- I have a melody in my head before the word comes out. I'm I'm constantly writing to a melody. I played a lot of dub reggae music in in writing Fire Rush to get myself back into that that rhythm, that beat. Um, So yeah. I listened to your playlist that you compiled while I was reading the book um, and I really enjoyed it. So I have to, I would, I would tell um, listeners to go seek that out as well. Yeah. I mean, the the music is is integral to the writing. uh, It's integral to Fire Rush and the the playlist. I really would love people to really listen to the tracks because uh, some of them actually link into the themes and particular chapters as well. I wanted to ask you about um, Yame because I I was wondering as I was reading this, she has such distinctive voice um, and the, the novel's told in the first person for the most part. And was that always the mode you wanted to tell the story in? Did you always want it to be through Yame's eyes and how did you how did she come to life as as your protagonist who of course is based on your experiences but is a is a fictional character uh, I th- I think I, I decided that she had it had to be told from a first person narrative because it's all about her empowerment and it's about her having a voice and I felt having a voice linked in with first person um I was very much drawing on my own experiences as a starting point, trying to explore uh, my own experiences. But but I also carried out lots of, not lots, but a few consultations with women who had been in that environment at the same time and consulted them about some of the issues they'd experienced. And I really wanted to be be representative of women in that community generally. So I was drawing on some of the experiences from those consultations and feeding them into Yame's experiences as well. And one of the really important strands of this book is Yame's connection with her mother who is absent. Um, And that really comes through her spitting lyrics and also through the music that she's listening to. And I wonder if, if you consider that kind of feminine ancestral relationship as being something that is really to be found in music and in rhythm in particular? Yes. I mean, I think that's why I said, and I think one of the lines, you know, um, something about the men making the music, but there's women that carry the sounds. I'm trying to say that, 
you know, in, in, in the Jamaican household, from my experience, the women were the ones who went around the houses singing the folk, the old traditional folk songs and, you know, passing them on to the children. So I felt that I'm trying to say that it, for me, the, the, that, that ancestral sound is carried through women's voices. And I wanted to show that somehow through music, through dub reggae, we are connected to that sound still and we can access it as a means of empowerment, of uh, accessing traditional ways of, of, of living and, and finding power. I want to come back to you saying one of the things that you didn't quite know how to do at the start was um, the structure of the novel. Yeah. which is always difficult. Um, and, you know, there are th- there are three parts of this novel set in three different places. And that I, th- I thought that worked really neatly as a kind of three-act structure. And I wonder if that was, was that always the way you wanted to structure it? Did you, did you play around with it? Were you thinking of it as a three-act structure? How did that whole process work for you? I think I kind of just lots of experimentation. I stumbled into this. I realized, I think I was writing, structuring it subconsciously. So I realized at some point that actually the first, I don't know, five, six chapters or whatever, were all underground. And then, then she's going to Jamaica. And I thought, actually, okay, so the first part is going to be underground the second part is is overground and then I realized towards the end we're getting more sound bound I said okay so the third part of the book is sound bound it's the audio audiotopia and that's when I thought okay this is going to be three parts and I'm going to start to really enhance and pull out those three different um, landscapes or settings in those three acts so it kind of happened evolved almost subconsciously um, and also the structure around, I then realized that actually in in separating those three parts, I realized that I wanted to make it like a dub, a dub plate, a dub record, but you have the B side. So those kind of interlude between book one and book two, that's the reverse side when it's all in italics. I thought that's the B side, that's the dub plate version, if you like. That's amazing. That really, yeah, that really clicks actually. But also the thing I found really intriguing about this novel is it felt like it could have been three separate books almost. Like I really enjoyed the facts and I don't think this gives too much away to say, but at the beginning it looks like it's going to be a love story. And then it goes so far beyond that to center Yamie rather than the kind of big romance. And I, I appreciated that so much. And I wonder, were you ever tempted to write further into that story or did you always know you were going to relinquish it? I I always knew I was going to relinquish it, and I had some people who questioned it, but I knew my motives were about experience. Uh, I wanted to explore and to express how we connect to people, whether they are with us or no longer with us, or removed by distance or physical distance or other kind of distance. I re- that's what I wanted to explore, how we connect to people through sound, people we've lost or loved ones who are far away. What is it? What is separation? What, what is grief and what is loss? And can music connect us to things we have lost, people we've lost? And I've, that was something I really wanted to explore through the book. You write so beautifully about falling in love. Um, especially someone falling in love who's a little guarded like Yame is. And 
I wonder how you approached writing that process in particular. What is your, I don't know, was was there anything you were trying to avoid? Was there anything you really wanted to convey? I wanted to convey the yearning of someone who's looking for love and then finds it, but still that yearning is still there in a way because you can't perhaps quite believe you found it. I think I've had experiences where I've lost people important in my life and you still have that yearning for them, that yearning for that very, very specific type of love that only they can provide. Thinking perhaps also of some of the men I should have loved when I was younger but didn't appreciate and you kind of yearn for them now and it's like Moose is very much an amalgamation of two or three men that I should have given uh, a chance when I was younger, but didn't appreciate their goodness. And I was like, I still have that yearning for them. So I was very much drawing on that retrospective yearning. Why didn't I go with that great guy? Who was <laughs> I love that it's kind of a chance to rewrite the decisions you made yes, as well. Yes, exactly. I think very much that's exactly what I was doing. Oh, man. Moose is, Moose is a gorgeous, gorgeous character as well. He really is. I wanted to ask about the relationship between the three young women that we sort of start the story with, Yamie, Ruma, mm. and Asasi, because there's there's an interesting dynamic there in that little triangle. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about it and how how they the three of them and their relation to one another kind of came to you. It's very much best. I seem to have had in my early uh, years always been in like a three three way relationship with my with with girlfriends. And I think the dynamics in have always been always the same. You you had a really tough outgoing one, then me the slightly more passive one, and the the in between was the slightly funny one that kept everyone kind of together and was the kind of uh, intermediary. I think three way from one of my experience, three way friendships between women kind of work. There's always like three kind of. Um, archetypal characters that keep that three-way relationship going uh, because of their differences, but also the thing that can actually cause it to collapse and inwards and just break down. That's so interesting. I don't think I've ever been in a trio of friends. I'm trying to think. Oh man, I've been in a (laughs) lot. Maybe I don't have an archetypal. (laughs) I think it's like a habit as well. Like if you're, if you're familiar with the triangle thing, like I've been in a lot of triangles as well. And um, yeah, I agree with you. I think also there's something when there's three of you and you're all connected to one another in the way that these three characters are, it also takes the pressure off the intimacy a little bit because there's always, you can always swap the intensity from one person to another. And if there's only two people, sometimes it collapses under too much intensity. I think you're absolutely right. I think that's exactly why I still to this day seek out three-way relationships. I'm always looking for to have two other friends and we, all, all three of us will go out and hang out because it is about that it, avoiding the intimacy. If you're not up for it, it's going to be too intense. You have, you, you know, you kind of, you you want to back off a little today and leave those the other two to kind of uh, go into it a bit more. Um, yeah, I think you're absolutely right about the intimacy side of it. And in the in the second act of the book, again, not to give too much away, um, Yame gets drawn into crime in some way, in in a very, I thought, believable way, in which mm. she she does have choice, but she also doesn't have choice, and and also that it's not totally black and white. You know, who, what is good, what is bad, 
what people own and what they deserve. Um, and I wonder what was important to you about depicting that world and and why you chose to send her in that direction. I, you know, I was in that position as a young person. I did, I was involved in a gang um, who were involved in criminal activity. And I did get drawn in very, very subtly out of a need for protection and safety. And I, I came to see these men that they weren't all bad, you know, they weren't, they did some good things for people. Uh, I wanted to explore what what makes someone a criminal and what is good and what is bad to show that it's not easy just to say, yes, this person's bad because he's stealing. Why are they stealing? What are their motivations? And what are the other a- aspects of their personalities? I really wanted to explore and I suppose understand the men that I, the, the gang I've been with retrospectively draw some understanding from who they were and why I got involved with them and how, how did I end up with those men? You know, why, why didn't I get away? Yeah. And it becomes very difficult for her to get out eventually. And partially because she, she kind of finds herself drawn into a very controlling relationship with one of the men. And I, I don't know, it was, that was very scary to read about that. And, um, I don't know what was it like to to write about that. I suppose I wanted to ask you. Um, you know that it would because it becomes a very important part of the book. Yeah, I felt I again a huge sense of responsibility, not make it gratuitous, but to be sensitive to the issue and to show uh, how it's possible for a woman um, to be groomed um, by a man. Um, and have her mind taken over and how difficult it is to get back to yourself once someone has invaded your mind and, and, and the body. Um, so it's very difficult, very challenging to write about, to get it right without making, like I said, make it gratuitous or, or sensationalist. Um, I, had, I wanted to make it seem believable that this happens this way and it's not as easy as some people may think, you know, why don't you just get out straight away? Why don't you just run? Right. And you don't necessarily know what you're capable of until you're in a situation that calls something out of you. I think, you know, also her development, the way I understood it anyway, is her development as she finds her voice, which we see kind of represented with her on the mic as well as as us in her interiority. Like, these really complicated experiences she has, these difficult experiences she has, they also help her find her voice, which doesn't mean that it's okay that she goes through things that are very hard. But again, it, you're bringing us into this gray area about the the experience of life, right? Yes. I mean, a lot of us are going to experience trauma in one way or another. And I, I think it's important to, to, to sh- I wanted to show how, you can come out of it stronger and, you know, you can tap into your in resources you didn't know you have and um, use it um, and grow from it. So, yeah, I think I wanted to, to be a hopeful, you know, something hopeful from a dark, a dark situation. It definitely is. Jacqueline Crooks, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. It's my pleasure. Thank you.
So the wider theme of our show today is dance. And I want to start, Octavia, what is your relationship with dance like? And do you like to read about dancing, which are two very different things, aren't they? They are. I mean, I love to dance. I love to dance. And um, reading Jacqueline's book, was this like incredibly powerful reminder. I mean, it's called fire rush and like the best kind of dancing feels like a fire rush, doesn't it? You feel your muscles alive and electric and you're just elated by the whole experience. And I used to have that as such a regular thing in my life. And it's something that I really have lost a lot. I've really lost it. I I think the pandemic, I feel like kind of took my last couple of good years of dancing away from me. (laughs) Just because we we sort of aged into this different part of our life over that time. And, I, you know, it depends what age you were when it started. But I feel like for those of us who are now in kind of our mid to late 30s, where babies are being born and parents are getting sick and like dancing feels a little further out of reach than I would like it to. Um, but reading this book, I was like, no, <laughs> I refuse <laughs> and I am getting it back because it is also such a reminder that dance connects you to community as well. And there is nothing like getting lost in the crowd of dancing bodies, really nothing like it. It's so transcendent. Um, and I, I love reading about dance when it is done well, because it can remind me of that transcendence and because it can connect me to all that is kind of enriching and wonderful about it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think what I'm looking for in writing about dance is writing that makes me want to dance, you know? Mm -hmm. I think I want it to have an effect on me, but I'm going to get into that, I think, later. So yeah, but yes, I love dancing. I love reading about dancing. I hate reading about dancing when it's done badly. Mm, we <laughs> a bit like sex, that. isn't it? It's a bit yeah. like sex. Like good sex like writing that. is fabulous and bad sex writing is kind of excruciating. <laughs> and I think the same the same can be said about writing about dance, don't you? Yeah, it's true. It's um I don't know, it's I think less people write about dance than they write about sex. Um and I wonder I don't know, it was it was hard for me to think of examples of just scenes describing dancing for this show. Mm, Um, Agreed. Yeah. 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 I think like in principle, I like reading about dance, but in, I I don't know. Then I was like, I, well, I loved reading about it in fire rush. That was great. Um, And I read ballet books as a kid, which is a certain kind of reading about dance, I suppose. Wait, are Um, we having a shout out for Angelina Ballerina right here? Yes. (laughs) 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 Who, for those who do not know, is a mouse. <laughs> Just <laughs> FYI. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know if there's a lot of description of dance that goes on in that series. So I'm really reaching here. Um, and it, and it's interesting, like one of the examples that came up when I was doing some research about was Swing Time by Zadie Smith, which yeah, if I love Zadie book. and I love dance, I should have read, but I haven't. So I, I don't know. Um, but like you, the dancing itself, I love dancing. Um, I love it in all contexts. Um, and yeah, it's, it's interesting. I feel that the dancing that I do these days tends to happen at kind of weddings because those are now the parties I tend to be going to where it's an appropriate thing to do. And I really love dancing at weddings because it's also all ages on the dance floor, which doesn't happen in a lot of other venues or parties. And I feel that people really let loose in a way that, you know, allows them to be free, as we discussed with Jacqueline, 
in the way that the best dancing does. Um, and I am very much not a good or a professional dancer. And I'm com- in complete awe of people who are, and this is a little bit different, but I, I love watching dancing. I love watching professional dancers. So I took ballet as a kid. I still love going to the ballet. Um, I love watching contemporary dance like at Sadler's Wells or, or venues like that. And, and in fact, often I'm more moved by contemporary dance and I'd love to see more dance, you know, now that we can go back to theaters again, that's one of the things I've really said that I would like to do more of. Um, Mm. so I, yeah, dance is great. Well, um, let's get into a little bit of what you were hinting at earlier. Um, because dancing is such, uh, such a visual and kind of bodily means of expression and, It often involves music. It often involves some kind of rhythm. How do you think literature can capture that? What does the best literature do that captures that movement, really? Well, I think in that question, you're really getting at what writing and dancing have in common, right? Like rhythm. Rhythm is so important. Good writing of any kind, whether it's prose or poetry or, you know, really kind of cold narrative work or like a really immersive novelistic voice like it's got to have good rhythm and if it doesn't have good rhythm it doesn't end up being for me very good writing um and I think that you know writing that makes you feel rhythm in your body and that makes you want to get up and move your body or reminds you like I was saying of that transcendence you can feel when you dance is really really powerful um and I think that you know I talked before on the show about the idea of like a body genre. And I think that writing about dance can also be like writing about sex. It can be a body genre in that it calls something in your body to the surface, but also the best writing like dance is movement, right? Like the best writing moves you, it moves you emotionally. It moves the story along. It is not static <laughs> and it can be like a dance as a reader with the writer. When you're reading, the writing draws you on, it teases you with it page over page over page. And I think that 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 relationship that you have with a text can be like the relationship between two dancers. And I think that's really, really exciting. So I think writing about dance when it works can be a really useful way of breaking down this really arbitrary barrier that a lot of people cling to. We all are guilty of it, I think, between like the cerebral and the bodily, because dance and writing when they're brought together are a really brilliant combination of the cerebral and the bodily. And I think that's very exciting. I love that idea of the writing moving you along. I think that's so true. Um, and, and the rhythm of the writing as well. There are certain books that kind of make you feel that you want to dance or you want to move, or you want to have some kind of bodily relationship with the reading that you're doing. And I wonder, because I was thinking about this and I was thinking, you know, so many of the examples I was thinking about were film of depictions of dance. In some ways, it's a much more immediate medium for exploring dance because of that audiovisual experience that you have and the way you can show it and the way you can hear the music. And so, you know, I was like, I I love films about dance. I love like those trashy films like Center Stage or Honey or like Step Up, (laughs) Save the Last Dance. They're so great. But, you know, there are, of course, some classier films about dance like The Red Shoes. Um, And I love watching musicals. I love those old like Gene Kelly tap dancing and and all of those things. So, yeah, I think writing about dance has like a, a bigger barrier 
in a way. It's like not as immediate. And I think it has to be a lot more thoughtful about how it expresses those things. Um, but I think you, you said a lot of that really well. And I, and I was thinking about this too. I don't think it necessarily has to describe what's going on, um, like with the body, like how the body is moving. I think it can be very metaphoric as well. And, and part of that is because, you know, part of dance is an experience of both being like very in the body, but totally outside of the body. Um, and right. I think writing can do that too. Also, the difference just listening to you that really strikes me is, you know, when you're watching dance on film, you're outside of it. Whereas when you're reading about dance, you're inside of it. You know, that not necessarily, but that's the best. That's kind of what we're saying we prefer, right? That when you're reading about it, you're inside the body of the dancer. Maybe you're feeling it act on your body. Whereas when you're watching it on a film, you're a bit more separated from it, I think, on yeah, the whole. That is true. So we got into this a bit when we talked about parties, but it strikes me that there are so many epic scenes in books that it dances, whether they're, you know, balls in Jane Austen's novels or prom scenes or, you know, parties at clubs in the 70s in New York City. So why do you think dance plays such a pivotal role um, in this way? Honestly, because dancing is basically sex, I think, in a lot of these books. Like, it's foreplay, right? And it's a way of making things happen that are to do with the body and to do with seduction or about the controlling of sexuality or about if you if you are queer and you can't express your sexuality out in the street, these places where subcultures thrive because they're not allowed to thrive out in the open. Like, I think that's the wild thing. I mean, you mentioned Jane Austen, right? About all those like incredibly stuffy traditional dances in Jane Austen. They're actually a way of displaying sexuality and policing it at the same time, right? Mm. So like in a way, yeah, I think it's basically because it's sex. It's where bodies come together and collide into one another and meet one another. Um, there's a brilliant piece on electric literature that I found researching for this show by the author and multidisciplinary artist Tija Jin, whose novel is called um, Keeping the House. And the title of this piece is Books That Read Like a Club Scene from the Sopranos, which is an amazing title for an article. <laughs> and it's basically a list of books that she um, she feels explore what she calls curated insularity of a club scene. And I think that's such a brilliant way of putting it, the curated insularity of these worlds. So she writes about how scenes set in clubs or on dance floors offer a very specific kind of window into other people's, and this is a quote, disconnected euphoria, which I thought was another amazing way of putting it because you really get into that on a dance scene. You're there as an individual, but you're also there as a group. And so it's this strange kind of communal and also singular experience. Um, but I also think, you know, dance scenes are, are on the whole, they tend to be pretty high stakes, right? Because they're, they're scenes that characters enter with hopes, with desire, with that they're maybe searching for pleasure or maybe they're searching for transcendence or maybe they're searching for escape. But I don't think characters walk into dance scenes without an expectation of some kind. So, you know, pleasure can be a high stakes pursuit anyway. So I think there can be a lot riding on these scenes in a novel and that can make it very interesting. Yeah, totally. And I think the vulnerability of dancing as well, mm, um, yeah. you know, even the, the, the most confident dancing is still, you're you're putting yourself out there in a way. You're putting yourself out there to, you know, touch other people, to be judged by other people, to be seen by other people. You know, dancing is not something that you're doing, um, which you, you know there there's a reason why there are wallflowers and there are dancers. You know, um, be, like dancing exposes you, and I think that's part of the high stakes element of all of these things too. Even if it's 
you know, being at a Jane Austen ball and doing the steps, there's still something about that where it's your, um, you become very public in a way in, in these mm. atmospheres, even if it's also enclosed. Um, and I was just thinking as a, as an example here, um, it, it, like all of that weight of expectation and vulnerability and, um, sex is kind of one of the pinnacles I think is the scene from Carrie by Stephen King. Um, oh my God. He, yeah. He, like, <laughs> totally understands that symbolism, doesn't he? And yeah. he uses it to terrifying and completely memorable effect. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So what about, this is a little bit different. What about books like Fire Rush that are set in specific, um, and it's confusing to use the word scenes. I guess we could also say subcultures of dance or music. I mean, do you think that literature is good at exploring that? Yeah, definitely. It, it's such a good medium for bringing a scene like that to life, right? Through character and and dramatic tension. And I think, you know, what Jacqueline was saying about the research that she did into the history of dub reggae and, and the history of the, the sound systems and everything like that. Like you could read a nonfiction book about all that and that would give you one set of, um, you know, facts and figures about it. But then to also read a novel that really brings it alive, I think is amazing. Yeah. It's so exciting to be let into a subculture through literature, isn't it? Um, because, because we can come into a new world. Um, and I couldn't think of as many examples as I would have liked, given that I was like, yes, this is the best way to do it. But um, <laughs> <laughs> there, there's this brutal house, which yeah. by Nevin Govindan, who is one of your faves, of course, which is about New York's um, drag ball scene. I know Kate Atkinson's latest novel, Shrines of Gaiety, was set in British nightclubs in the 20s. Um, oh, interesting. I was also thinking about Irvin Welsh. I feel like there are always... Yeah. I mean, that's about a subculture, but they're also kind of raving scenes and music is such an important part of all of his novels. Yeah. And in a play, but in um, Jerusalem by Jazz Butterworth, the rave culture of kind of um, Wiltshire in England, like non-urban rave culture is explored in that play, which is really interesting. Mm. I was also wanted to say that something I thought was kind of interesting uh, was when I was looking the theme, you know, researching the theme. Um, loads of the lists of books that came up were actually about YA books or novels aimed at younger readers and teenagers and kids, as if dancing and subcultures are themes that become less interesting to readers as they grow older, which I really hope is wrong because that's absolutely not the case as far as I'm concerned. But I wonder if there is a perception that aligns with that, right? They're like dancing, I guess, kind of like what you were saying, that dancing is not considered a serious topic. Um, and I wonder if that if that's right, if there's something there to do with the intellectuals kind of distrust of sensuality, right? Like, mm. and speaking of which, I know that Leonie Ross, who we've had on the show before um, to talk about her her first book, her debut novel, This One Sky Day, um, her next novel is going to be a lot about dancing and she writes sensuality like nobody else. So I'm very excited about that. Ooh, yeah, that sounds amazing. I also wonder if it's partially that we all like age out of it because we don't want to stay up all night anymore. <laughs> kind of like Jacqueline. <laughs> Need to have more day raves if we want to, you know, keep dancing <laughs> subcultures available yeah. for the older folks. That's right. They do happen. <laughs> they happen. Um, so what is your recommendation of one thing to read about dance, Octavia? Mine um, is a poem. It's by Frank O'Hara and it's called At the Old Place. And it's about a summer night when he and some friends, they're at a normal bar and they ditch it to go to the old place, which is a gay bar where they can kick up their heels and they can really let go. 
And I just think it captures the total delight and freedom you can feel in dance. And Ahara loved to dance apparently, and um, supposedly he was very good at it, but also how dance and dance spaces can be this way of finding community and finding refuge, which is such an important part of it. What's yours? Mine is that people check out Amy Liptrot's The Instant, and particularly the scene when she goes to Berghain in Berlin, which is a big, famous club. Um, and she's not exactly losing herself in dance, not least because she's literally taking notes the whole time. But <laughs> I think it's a really excellent scene, and it's really wonderful exploration of um, why being in a massive room full of people writhing to music um, where you kind of, you can't see anything, you kind of can't think because the music is so loud, can be so appealing and also so transporting. And also she she makes all of these allusions to the sea, um, which are really wonderful. And I think, you know, as I was saying, metaphor can be a really wonderful way to talk about dance too. Yeah, perfect. are back here with Jacqueline Crooks to give our monthly book recommendations. So Octavia, would you like to start? I would love to. Mine is a novel called Older Brother by Mahir Gouvin, which is translated from the French by Tina Kova. And it actually feels like um, it's a good companion for Fire Rush in a way, just in that it's, it's another book that really immerses you in a very specific world through the use of the first person voice and you're immediately kind of drawn into this character's interiority. Very different story though. So it's it's the story of a Franco-Syrian family um, living on the outskirts of Paris and they're trying to get by in this culture that's really hostile to them. Um, It's set in, in contemporary time and the father is an atheist communist and he works as a taxi driver. He came to France to study. He fell in love with a French woman. They had these two sons and he's ended up without her working as a taxi driver. And the older brother is an Uber driver, so his eldest son. And so you have this immediate kind of contrast set up between the communist father whose taxi company is being put out of business by the arrival of Uber and the gig economy taking over, obviously symbol for capitalism. Um, And his younger brother is a nurse and all the younger brother wants is to become a doctor, but he's totally locked out of this by the racist and classist system that has a hold on France. Um, And it's mainly told by the older brother, but some of the chapters are in the voice of the younger brother. So it's not quite alternating, but you get both of these voices because the younger brother ends up getting to this point where he's like, I cannot pursue my dream in France. So he ends up returning to Syria and he he goes on what may or may not be a humanitarian mission to help the war wounded there. And he goes with a Muslim organization. And the story unfolds from there. I won't say more about what happens, but it's basically very much rooted in questions of family and identity, questions of nationhood and statehood. But he's also looking at the consequences of the gig economy and how that affects the myth of French liberty, equality and fraternity, right? Like the big three big hitters of French society. Um, And I just, I found it so gripping and so kind of, it really held my 
held me in its world from start to finish. I read it very fast. And it won the Prix Goncourt in 2017. So I'm sure plenty of listeners will have read it, but I wanted to give it a shout out because it's yeah, a fantastic read. Great. Jacqueline, could we please have your recommendation? So I've just finished reading Radical, A Life of My Own by Shalo Duo. And I'm just completely entranced by this book. It's about a Chinese migrant woman, writer and academic, who is working in New York. She's traveled to New York for some work and she's left behind in London her partner and her child. And it's exploring um, what it is to be a migrant in, in another space, exploring the city, trying to find um, a sense of belonging and freedom. She's trying to make space from her responsibilities as being a mother and allow herself to be an artist. But it's the structure of this book that I absolutely love. Each chapter, it starts off with a, a, a word and it has the, the Chinese um, symbol characters for that word. And it's exploring the root of the Chinese word as she's exploring her own Chinese roots and linking it to, to her, her life in the here and now and these sites uh, that are new to her. We, we're watching her as she moves to trying to find the beat of liberation to her life in New York and in London and at the distant the distant eastern landscape of her past and it's about I think it's it's a kind of survivalism survivalism uh, book I would say it's showing that survival doesn't always have to be an intense physical fight this is a woman fighting um, for the right to be creative um, she's fighting with herself against some of her desires as she's exploring this idea of uh, an affair with a man here in New York so it's how important is the survival and the creative life for which many women, um, which many women are struggling to to kind of get uh, achieve. I'm so happy to hear you talk about that. It's literally next on my pile of reading. Uh-huh. <laughs> it sounds amazing. Sounds so good. Okay. Well, I think we're both going to read that after our recommendation. So my recommendation this month is the novel Cassandra at the Wedding by Dorothy Baker, which I just finished listening to the audiobook of, which is narrated by Deborah Eisenberg. And I admit that I did not love this novel at first, perhaps because of the narrator, actually. There was something a little bit grating about her voice at first, um, but then I got kind of used to it. And I took a big break in the middle And then I came back to the book and something had just shifted when I came back to the book and I ended up really, really enjoying it. So it's, it's a very short novel published in 1962 about the relationship between twin sisters from California. Basically one of the sisters, Judith is getting married. Um, and the other sister, Cassandra has returned to their childhood home for the ceremony, having never met Judith's fiance, Jack, who is a doctor. And it quickly becomes clear that Cassandra is really struggling in her life. Um, She's just finished a PhD and is sort of rudderless. And she is very against Judith's union and also kind of oblivious to, she can't read the room. She's she's a wonderful creation (laughs) because she's a narrator where you absolutely see the gulf between how she's narrating um, circumstances and how things are actually happening. And the novel is narrated by both Judith and Cassandra. So we get both of their 
kind of perspectives on what's going on. It's very wry. It's very voice-driven. It's sometimes very funny. It's also very sad. And it's very smart about the the very close but often complicated relationship between siblings and especially twins. And I think the process that we all have to go through to some extent to separate from our families and how difficult that can be both for us and for our family members who maybe are at different stages of their lives or have different needs. It's a delightful little book that has grown and grown on me, um, and I'm really glad that I read it. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to Jacqueline Crooks and to Daphne Carnesis and George Miaris for editing. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on ncs.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch by email, litfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please rate and review us on iTunes. It makes an enormous difference and it helps us reach new listeners. We'll be back soon with another mini-sode. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright down the line from London. <laughs> and this is Literary Friction. I'm truly sorry about that. No more down the line ever again. No, we have to have it now. <laughs>